Well, at the end of each quarter, we like to give you an update on our finances. Um, the good news is, is that giving has remained um, strong uh, so far, despite a rather challenging year. So thank you for your uh, generosity. Uh, contributions uh, are similar to last year's uh, first quarter, as well as the, the first quarter budget uh, for 2021. And so with expenditures uh, slightly less in our budget, we actually had a net surplus for the uh, first three months uh, of about $142,000. Uh, so God is very good. If you'd like to have uh, more detail, you can call the church office. Uh, we always want to be very transparent when it comes to finances in the church. Well, uh, complete these common American phrases for me. Are you ready? If it sounds too good to be true, it... Let's try that again. <laughs> if it sounds too good to be true, it is. We make money the old-fashioned way we, there's no such thing as a free, and God helps those who help. <laughs> All right. Now, don't raise your hands, but if you, if you thought that last one was in the Bible, uh, but it is not. Maybe second hesitations, I'm not sure, but anyhow. Everything about the American way of life teaches you what? That what you earn in life, that there is, there is no free lunch. In America and elsewhere, we value uh, hard work, uh, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, um, elbow grease, uh, sweat, and effort. Uh, we tell people, you get what you deserve in life. Or if it's going to be, it's up to me. Now, these are true. And they are good to a certain extent. But fortunately, it's not the way that God works. You see, God loves to bless people who don't deserve it. In fact, that's his very nature. And there's a word for it, and that word is grace. Now, that goes against everything that we are taught in life. From the moment that we are born, we're taught that you have to earn it. And so it creates a lot of confusion and misunderstanding in the Christian life. Uh, I have been a Christian almost for 48 years, and I have to say that it still sometimes causes me problems. I think I have to do just a little bit more if I just do this or that, that God's going to love me a little bit more than perhaps what he loves Linda. <laughs> Caught you off guard there, didn't I? But when you experience God's grace and when you understand it, Oh, it will set you free like nothing else. So we're in week two of our series on Paul's letter or epistle to the Ephesians. Uh, last week we learned about all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. And then pray, uh, Paul prayed that they would have a spirit of wisdom and, and revelation so that they might come to know him better and better. And then he wants them to know that the same power that raised Christ from the dead also lives in them. He begins chapter 2 of his letter by reminding them what life was like before they knew Christ. And it's not pretty. I'm beginning in verse 4. For you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live and you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. 
all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So let's review what Paul says here. He says, first of all, we were spiritually dead and mired in a life of sin, letting the world tell us how to live and what to believe and doing what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it. Why? Paul says it's because we're sinners and we're born that way and it's called original sin. Uh, the other day somebody asked me why I didn't preach more on specific sins. Uh, the reason is that specific sins like Lying and, and stealing and cheating are, are not the main problem. They're not the main issue. Now, don't get me wrong. They, they cause great harm, but those things are merely a symptom of the bigger issue, which is sin with a capital S. Now, sometimes people want to argue with me, and they'll say, you know, people are not all that bad. And my reply is always the same. Well, did you read the morning news? Just open the newspaper or open your, your news on your phone and see. The world's a mess, amen? Seriously, though, those of us who are of the Wesleyan Methodist tradition would, would agree. We're not all bad, but that's not because we are so good, but because God is good. You see, God's grace in the world restrains us, and we call it prevenient grace, Provenient grace is simply God's love coming to us before we're even aware of it, before we're consciously aware that it is God's love. It is God's love in intruding into our life, convincing us of our need, awakening us to God's presence and, and gracious availability to, to us, convicting us, yes, of our sin and our need for God, and then telling us the truth about ourselves until we lovingly come to that place of repentance. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 2. He says, When Gentiles who do not possess the law do instinctively what the law requires these, though not having the law or a law to themselves, they show, listen, they show that what the law requires is written on their hearts to which their own conscience also bears witness. You see, that's prevenient grace. Our conscience is a manifestation of this grace. I bet you can think of times when, when you planned a little mischief and then your conscience got the better of you and you changed your mind. That's God's grace. We find it simply stated by Christ himself. He says, no one comes to me unless drawn by the Father who sent me. So we don't save ourselves. We aren't looking for God. In fact, most of the time, we are running in the opposite direction from God. God is a seeking God. Now, the Greek word for grace in the New Testament is the word charis. It's used some 153 times in the New Testament. 87 of those times it is translated as grace. The other times it's translated as favor. But it means gift. And we find it in verses 4 through 9. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with him, raised us up with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. 
in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8. Now listen, if you don't have verse 8 memorized, you should. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. So Paul ends verse 3 by saying we were by nature deserving of wrath. We deserve punishment, but in verse 4 and following, Paul says what we get is grace. We deserve punishment. We get God's grace. We are saved by grace. And simply defined, grace is, is something we don't deserve. It's something that we can't earn. And it's a part of the very character, the very nature of God. Sometimes I'll hear people say that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament, but it's not so. Grace has always been at the heart of God. I mean, over and over again in the Old Testament it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is the dominant message of the Old Testament. God cares about freeing slaves in Egypt even though they don't deserve it. God makes Abraham the father of a nation even though he doesn't deserve it. God makes David king over Israel even though his behavior shows he doesn't deserve it. God is kind, God is loving, God is, is good. And sometimes we grow up with a picture of, of God as a wrathful God who's just waiting for us to, to do something wrong, to mess up so he can exact vengeance upon us, but that is not true. God is not interested in exacting judgment upon you. God wants to bless you, but not because you've earned it, not because you deserve it. It's just who God is. It is the very nature of God. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think I've earned what I've gotten. We think that the reason that we are so successful, the reason that we are so talented, the reason we're so beautiful, somehow we deserve it. But Paul would say, all you have is because of God's grace. We've earned nothing, and we cannot boast. Uh, the ancient Greeks used the word grace when a, a strong person helped someone who was weak, somebody who was needy, somebody who was uh, dependent. The weak person could not succeed on his own. That is grace. Grace is God's choice to, to love, to, to forgive, to embrace, and, and to accept and to help us when we've done nothing to earn it. Now, I, I meet a lot of people in, in this community who are very success-oriented, and I love those people because they know how to get things done. And if I have a particularly difficult project, I go to somebody who's, who's driven like that, and I say, can you do that? And they take off with it and do it. But if grace came to us, I wonder if grace might not say, you know, stop a minute. You don't have to be more successful than you already are. You don't have to win any more than you've already won. You don't have to be any more talented. You don't have to look better than you already do. Because all those things are gifts of God's grace. You can't boast about them. So it's not bad to succeed. It's not bad to win. It's not bad to be smart or, or talented. God can use all of those things for his glory, and he does. But they will not save you. You see, the alternative to, to grace is salvation by works. I, I can be good enough. I can, I can merit salvation by, by my own efforts. 
In fact, even people who don't believe in God believe in some form of salvation by works. They just just redefine the word salvation. We all want to be saved. We all want to be free. We we all need it. We all know that we need it. That sense will will never go away. Our, Our culture, though, redefines what salvation means. Now it becomes largely an economic thing or or a therapeutic thing. Salvation will come if we're successful enough, and then we'll be happy enough, we think. But we have this sense inside that we're not there yet. And so we're constantly struggling. We're constantly on the run. We're constantly trying harder. We're constantly climbing higher. We're constantly pushing our kids to achieve more and to do better. Does that make sense? But Grace would say, stop. You don't need to be better. You can't be successful enough. You cannot be talented enough. You cannot be smart enough, tough enough, or even good enough. You see, grace is good, but it's not soft. Grace is not always concerned with making people feel good. Please don't mistake what I'm saying here. In fact, the old hymn we just sang, Amazing Grace, one of the lines says, it was grace that what? Taught my heart to fear. Yeah. The man who wrote that, John Newton, was a slave trader. He, he lived a terrible life. But in the midst of that, he found grace. And so he was able to write, it was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Seems strange to us that grace could teach somebody's heart to fear. But in our spiritual journey, that's a good thing. You see, I I think grace would say to some of us here this morning, it's important that you pay attention to the uneasiness that you have about not feeling good enough. You see, you can't relieve yourself by, uh, of that feeling by, by your accomplishments. You can't do it by, by having a stronger will, by trying harder. You can't, you can't achieve that by going to the gym more. It just doesn't work. The truth is we need God. We need to be saved from, from what sin has done and what it is doing to our souls. We need to be saved from sin. I mean, sin has messed us up as individuals. It has ruined our relationship with each other. It's ruined our relationship with the universe. It's ruined our relationship with God. The Bible would say that our our human will has become corrupt, that the human will has, has turned away from God. Your heart is corrupt and mine is corrupt. And that's the problem. And because corruption is, is so universal, because it affects every person, uh, we've just become used to it. It's kind of like we get used to getting older, don't we? And you see somebody you haven't seen from, from high school in 30 years, and you wonder, what in the world happened to them? And then you look in the mirror, oh, yeah. You just get used to it little by little, day by day. We get used to it. And we get used to the injustice, and we get used to the poverty, and we get used to the violence, and we get used to the abuse, and we get used to the apathy. But God never gets used to it. God, God never, looks, it never looks okay to him. He doesn't look at our broken world and say, that's okay. Grace doesn't do that. Grace holds us to a higher level. You see, God's standard is the sinless purity of his very nature. 
He's not severe. He's not unreasonable. But the only conditions under which his creation can flourish, you and me, it has to be justice. It has to be love. It has to be peace. And so in God's eyes, in a morally sane vision, sin is the horror of, of our souls. And grace would say to us today, would say that spiritual and, and moral sanity begins with the simple recognition that, God, I have neglected you. God, I have neglected your ways. I have ignored you. I have ignored your way of life. God, I have defied you, and I have defied your ways. There was something wrong, and I'm broken, and I can't fix it. You see, grace came to earth one day. The Gospel of John says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus shows us how grace lives, and he went to the cross, and he showed us how grace dies. And so Paul would write in Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely, listen, by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus so what Paul is saying here is that by grace we're declared to be forgiven. We are embraced. We are accepted. We are welcomed by God. Grace would say to you today, you can have acceptance. You can have forgiveness. You can have uh, the love that you crave no matter who you are, no matter where you've been. But stop trying to earn it. Stop trusting in your own good works. Stop, stop trusting in your own accomplishments, in your own success, in yourself. Instead, humble yourself and receive God's grace like a gift, like a child. And when we do that, we're justified. Now, justification is a, it's a theological word. It simply means this. It means that we're pardoned, that we, are, that we are forgiven for all of our past sins by God's grace. Justifying grace is the result of that acceptance of grace. Well, let's go on to verse 10, and, and I really wish that Paul had left verse 10 out of his letter because it's confusing. Listen, listen to what he says. He says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus, listen, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Wait a minute. I just thought that Paul had determined that I can't work my way to heaven, that it's not good works. That is futile. Just when we thought we were understanding grace, Paul decides to throw in verse 10. So which is it? Is it grace or is it good works? Well, here's why we need verse 10. Because it's both. And this has been so hard for the church through the ages to, to get right. We either tend to go from one extreme to the other. Either our good works, you know, get us to heaven or, or, or it's grace only. Now here's the thing. Our good works do not earn our salvation. Listen, our good works is the evidence of our salvation. And so when we feed the hungry, when we give water to the thirsty, when we welcome the stranger, when we clothe the naked, when we, when we care for the sick and the imprisoned, we show evidence that we have a new heart on the inside, that the gospel has changed us, that we've received that grace. Your compassion demonstrates that your heart has changed because you've received the gift of grace. You are moving from a life that is centered on yourself to a, a life that is centered on others. You are showing that you belong to Jesus, that you have a, a new and different worldview. 
but you've been changed from the inside out. I love the way Paul puts it. He says, we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. In other words, it's our purpose. It's our destiny. It's the reason that we are here, to do good to others as often as we can. Well, in verse 11, Paul begins with the word, therefore. And he uses that as a transition to show a cause and effect. Paul is telling his readers that, that all he has just said in, in the preceding uh, 10 verses is, is cause what he's about to say next. And here's what he says, verse 11 and on. He says, therefore, therefore, therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised, by those who call themselves the circumcision, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles here, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed, listen, the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. For his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. See, Paul is reminding his mostly Gentile readers that before Christ's death on the cross, they were far away, far away from God, far away from God's covenant promise, and far away from hope. But that the blood of Christ has brought them Together, the two groups who despised and, and who hated each other have become this new humanity. And the word for it is the church. You see, God's dream is the church is to be a place where race and where gender and where socioeconomic standing, where political affiliation no longer matters. God's vision is for the church is to be used to help this divided world to become one. Paul said it in Galatians chapter 3. He says, so in Christ Jesus, you who are all children of God through faith, for all of you who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. Now he says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. God's plan is to use his people, the church, to bring us together. People from all different racial, ethnic, political, economic. It's the vision that God planted in Paul's heart. It's the vision that God has planted in my heart. It's, it's the vision God has planted in your heart. John gives us a little glimpse of this. One day he has this incredible vision, and God gives him a glimpse of what this will look like in Revelation 7. He says, and after this I looked, and there was before me a great multitude 
that no one could count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And it's grace that accomplishes this. It's grace that does it. The dividing wall that separates us has to come down. Grace is the great equalizer. We don't get to heaven because we've earned it. We don't get to heaven because we're successful, because we're smart, because we're rich, because we're popular, because we're talented. We don't even get to heaven because of how religious we are. Paul reminds us we're saved by grace. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your amazing grace. That though we might be deserving of wrath, it's your very character, your very nature to show us love. Change our hearts, change our lives by that grace. And so fill us full of your love and grace that your people, your church, breaks down the dividing wall of hostility that we see in our world. Help us, God, to be the agents of change, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.